Good morning, good morning. So good to see you here in the house of the Lord. And uh, we all agree, none of us are perfect, and uh, how we know that uh, very, very well. But we do have a perfect God, and we do have a perfect Bible. Amen? So let's take that Bible, let's be finding John chapter 4. The Gospel of John chapter 4, I want to read beginning in verse 1. And though we're not going to deal with all of this passage, I think it's helpful if we see the scripture we're dealing with in its uh, context. And so we'll begin there in verse 1. Good to be together in the house of the Lord. Always good to do that. And we welcome all of you here. John chapter 4 and verse, excuse me, verse 1. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, that is John the Baptist of whom it speaks, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground, that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well. It was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou... Being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria. For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, And the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus saith unto her, Go, call thy husband and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidst thou truly. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, The hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem 
worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus said unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. And don't you know that you could have heard a pin drop when he said that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we just read, how grateful we are that Christ came to this earth to be the anointed one, the Messiah, prophet, priest, and king, to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And Lord, we come today to worship you, our Father, Christ, your Son, and our Lord and our King, and the Holy Spirit, our Comforter, and the one that you and the Son have sent to us to be within us, to live within us, and to guide us. And Lord, surely you are guiding us now as we worship. All is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. And we confess that. We know that well in our heart. And so we ask for your help. We ask for your guidance. We ask, Lord, that you would do what no person can do, and that is open our hearts to you, to your word to your will, to your ways, and let us leave our ways alone. Let us repent of our thinking and our ways and our, and our own will, our self-will. And Lord, lead us into your paths of righteousness for your name's sake. We pray now that you would have your way both in the preaching and in the hearing of the message. We pray that we'll not only hear with our ears, but most importantly with our heart that you would take this message and accomplish your perfect will in our lives, in our families, and in our church family. Thank you again for the privilege of gathering, the privilege of opening your word, the privilege of being together, and the privilege of knowing you and knowing what it means of which we were just read, the living water, that well that springs up within us and never fails. Thank you for everlasting life given as a gift of your grace. We pray for those that have not yet received that everlasting life, that, Lord, today would be that day that you would touch their heart and open their heart to that, to you and the blessing that only you can give in salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to speak to you on the subject today, worship that pleases God. Worship that pleases God. You read about Christ and the woman here at the well, and there are a lot of sermons preached on this text. Many of them have to do with evangelism, and that's understandable, because here was a woman who came with an empty pot and found out about a well of everlasting life springing up within her. That's quite a transformation. And it happened to her, as we know, from the end of the chapter but there's more here than just a message about evangelism. Actually, one of the great themes of this text we just read has to do with worship. Worship. And so we're going to be thinking today about worship. 
I think there are two primary words that stand out in the reading of our text. And I think you see them as well as I. I just remind you of them. One is water. That's obvious. And the other is worship. Water and worship. And so we see a link between the two. The water, meaning the well of water springing up in the soul of the believer unto everlasting life. And then that also being a part of our worship. That's why we worship. Because God has given us everlasting life. And there now is that hunger for Him and that spirit of gratitude and humility that we know He has made all the difference, an eternal difference in our lives. I don't know but what Christ had in mind when He said these words to this woman at that well, talked to her about water, physical water, and bringing the conversation over to the water of everlasting life. He may have well had this passage in mind in Jeremiah. You might just want to jot this down. Jeremiah 2.13, where the prophet said this, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. Think of that. God's people in the days of Jeremiah had done two things. They had forsaken the fountain of living waters, God himself, and that's brought out in our passage. And they had chosen instead these empty, broken containers that could hold no water. And that's what religion is, isn't it, without Christ? It's just empty. It's broken. It's worthless. But in Christ, it is the most precious of all. And we know exactly what Christ was speaking of here when he said that salvation is like a well of water springing up into everlasting life. There's another verse that I think may well have been in Christ's mind and on his heart when he was speaking to this woman. We know that it fits in well, at least we can say that. And that is over in Psalm 34 where it says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's true, isn't it? Isn't it? Three of us think so. It is wonderful to have the well of water in our soul. And the Lord is good and blessed are those that taste of his goodness. In verses 21 through 24, Christ talks about worship. And we're going to spend our time thinking about worship. I want you to see what brought that subject up. It was not Christ, in fact, that brought it up. Did you notice that in the reading? What really brought this up was the, the woman's attempt to avoid the touchy subject of her husband, the, her husbands in the past, and the man she was living with now that was not her husband. You notice that Jesus said in verse 16, Go, call your husband, and come hither. And then she had to admit, I have no husband. Then he said, You've well said you have no husband. And then he pointed out in the conversation, you've had five husbands. He knew all things, didn't he? And the one that you have now is not your husband, which is, in fact, saying that she's living with a man and she's not married to him. might be a good opportunity for me to say this right now. The culture we live in has taken a very shallow view, if a view at all, of marriage and what that stands for. 
And now some people say, well, we don't need to get married. We're living together. Things are well. But that's a far cry from marriage in the eyes of God. And we, this is not right in the eyes of God, number one. And it's not a substitute for marriage. Not at all. And Christ brings this out. And so in this conversation, uh, she's feeling more than a little guilt. And the conscience is very uneasy at this point. She makes a comment, verse 19, you must be a prophet. That's what you sound like. You've, you've read my life. You've told me all about my life, as dark as it was and is. And then she brings up the subject of worship, doesn't she, in verse 20. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And she's referring there in Samaria to Mount Gerizim. You remember Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal? And from which the blessings were pronounced and the curses pronounced uh, for obedience or disobedience, whatever the case might be, in the people of Israel as the years would roll by. And so this is the mountain referred to in Samaria. And she's bringing up the fact that her forefathers, Samaritan forefathers, worshipped in Mount Gerizim. And you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship so she's bringing up the subject of worship and why would she do that well the same reason people bring up worship a lot when we talk to them they don't want to deal with their sin and they don't want to deal with their soul but they will gladly entertain a conversation about religion or worship won't they I say they'll ask what kind of songs y'all sing down at liberty I say what kind of preacher is your preacher you know talks about things that aren't too bothersome and aren't too close to the heart and so this is really a diversion isn't it it's a distraction from the real issue at heart which is her heart and her soul that's the real issue and so Christ in his infinite wisdom and his love for her soul he talks to her about worship and says to her in verse 21 let's read these verses one more time and notice how much worship now is used in these verses. Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. That is, the Samaritans, they didn't even know what they were worshiping. They weren't worshiping the true God, but a false concept of God. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. The Jews always worshiped the one true God, if they worshiped at all. Of course, they did dabble in idolatry, but he's speaking here in the primary means they would worship the Lord, the one true God. But then he says, verse 23, the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. That is, worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. The Father's seeking such worshipers. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so, from this passage, Jesus delves into this all-important subject of worship and deals with some of the basic things pertaining to worship, and that's what the message is all about And so what I'd like to do is present some questions 
and some answers from God's Word about worship. Before we get to those questions and answers, let me say this. It's very timely in the life of our church that we deal with worship for two reasons. First of all, we're going through, as you know, in this series of messages week after week after week about the basic beliefs of our church. We started back with the basic beliefs about Scripture. We preached on that several weeks. Then the basic beliefs we have of God, His attributes and so forth. Last week it was that God was unchangeable. We preached on God's goodness, on God's greatness. And now would be a very timely subject on worship of that God and how important that is in the life of our church. And there's a second reason. Because tonight, as you've already heard, our choir is revving up again. Our choir is getting back on track. They'll be meeting right up here. Consider that an invitation. And so it's a perfect time for us to consider, since we have considered the nature of God, His greatness, His goodness, and all things else to be considered about Him. And now the matter of praising God and those who lead in worship along with the song leader in vocal Praise to God. What's that all about? What is worship all about? Well, music and praise is a big part of it. It's not the only part, but it is a great part of worship. And so we're going to consider this subject of worship. And first of all, the question is, what is it? What is worship? We can be in a worship service and not actually be mindful of what it is that we are to do. It's kind of like driving. We all know this too well. Let's be honest. Sometimes we're behind the wheel and we're thinking about everything but driving. That's dangerous, isn't it? It can be deadly. And so to be in a worship service, we ought definitely to think about what is worship? What are we doing here? What's it all about? The word worship in the original language, and it's the same word translated every time you see it here in its various forms, worship in this text, is a word from the Greek word proskuneo, which means to bend down and kiss the hand. That's the idea of the Greek word of worship, to kiss the hand. And you've seen that play out. In some respect, maybe in a movie or maybe you've seen that in person where someone will actually kneel in homage, in respect, in deference to a person. Perhaps it was a king. Perhaps it was, I hate to say it, the pope. To someone to pay respect and to kiss the ring or to kiss the hand. That's the idea of worship. So the idea of worship, the word itself, is to pay homage to to humble oneself, to bend down, to love, to respect, to honor in the greatest kind of way. It's interesting, our English word that we see, worship, comes from an old English word, worth-ship. You have to say that slowly to hear it. And the idea of worship in the English language is having to do with worthiness or worth and so we should ask, why do we worship? We worship because God has infinite worth. It's not about our worth, it's about His. What is God worth to us? Well, He's worth everything to us. 
What is our Savior and our Lord worth to us? He's worth everything to us. That is what drives worship. We are here to say you are worthy. That's the whole idea in a nutshell. Worship is not about you. It's not about me. It's not about the singers or the players or the choir. It's not about any of that. It's about him. And if we miss that, we have missed it all. We sing a song. It's one of my favorites. Not that that has anything to do with it. But I love the words. And I wanted to remind you of these words that we sing in a fairly new song. It's about like the one you mentioned that we sang earlier, Matt. Worthy of worship. And it's a very simple song, but full of meaning. Worthy of worship. Worthy of praise. Worthy of honor and glory, the song goes. Worthy of all the glad songs we can sing. Worthy of all the offerings we bring. You are worthy, Father, Creator. You are worthy, Savior, Sustainer. You are worthy. Worthy and wonderful. Worthy of worship and praise. What a simple and yet majestic song that gets right to the heart of worship itself. To say from our heart, with our presence, with our voices, with our minds, with everything within us, you are worthy. Wayne Grudem put it like this, simple definition, and it helps us in our understanding. Quote, worship is the activity of glorifying God in His presence with our voices and hearts. It's important that we add that last word. Not just with our voices, not just with our bodies, but with our hearts. Because we're going to see if we don't worship from the heart in spirit and in truth, we've missed the whole point. Have you thought about this? Worship is one thing that we do in this life that's going to carry over into the next. You can't say that about other things. Did you know there's not going to be any preaching in heaven? Well, there's one person that's grateful. Thank you, Doc. You may not have said it, but you were thinking it. <laughs> so preaching is on this side of heaven. No preaching. Seriously, there's no preaching in heaven. There's no need for preaching, right? We're glorified, and there's nobody needs to hear the gospel because everybody there has not only heard the gospel, they've embraced the gospel. There's not going to be any praying in heaven. We won't have any need in heaven be no need to pray. And so there's some things not going to be in heaven. No evangelism in heaven. It'll be too late for that. But worship will be the mainstay of heaven. That's what we do. And that's what we are doing here. And so there's something about that, thinking that that's what we're going to be doing for all eternity. And that's what we get to do right here and right now. Without a doubt, worship is the highest privilege we have ever on earth to worship our God. There's no higher privilege that we have and then for all eternity to worship God. And it should be the ultimate priority of our lives. Not only the highest privilege, but the ultimate priority. And I have to ask, is it? Do you consider it your greatest privilege, your highest privilege? And your top priority, I wonder if we're honest, if we could say 
Yes. It's the one thing we're going to keep on doing, and it should be important to us. The first question of the Westminster Catechism is a great device for teaching truth, question and answer kind of format in this uh, document that has gone down as one of the great documents of all church history. And by the way, Baptists used to use catechisms, this form of instruction in the home. We've gotten away from that, and in so doing, we've gotten away from a lot of good truth. Here's the first question and answer of the Westminster Catechism. What is the chief end of man? The answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And that's what worship is all about, to glorify Him and enjoy Him. To bask in His presence and to tell Him we delight in His presence. We desire to be in His presence and it is because He is so worthy that we come to give Him the worship that we offer today or anytime. A.P. Gibbs, a man, described the difference between ministry and worship. Here's what he had to say, and I'm going to quote. Ministry, or think of it in terms of what we do for God, our service. Ministry is that which comes down from the Father by the Son and the power of the Spirit through the human instrument. That is God working from heaven down and out through you and through me. That's ministry. Worship, Gibbs says, starts in the human instrument and goes up by the power of the Holy Spirit through the Son to the Father. But even when we think about it beginning here on earth and going up, whereas ministry begins up and comes down, there is a sense in which we will only offer worship when God initiates that in our heart. Isn't that true? We don't just decide that we're going to be a worshiper. God turns us into a worshiper. He makes us a worshiper. And if you are a believer, you then by nature, by nature, you become a worshiper. It's a part of your DNA as a believer. A person who has no desire for worship is no believer at all. Maybe I ought to say that again. I think I said it clearly, but I'll say it one more time. A person who has no desire for worship is no believer at all. That comes with our Christian faith in the new birth. Ministry and worship both begin with God as the source. He initiates it. He empowers it. And he directs both. That is, both our service to others and our service to him. That's really what worship is. We're, we call it a worship service. And we're not serving one another. We're serving him. Now the second question, why do we worship? Two basic reasons I want to give you in this message. There are probably many more I could give, but I think this sums up a lot of it from the Bible teaching on the subject. Two basic reasons. First of all, and this should be obvious, God deserves it. He deserves our worship. We just said that worship means declaring to him from the heart, you are worthy, and he certainly is. Just think about all he is and all he does that is, his very character, his very nature, and then all that he does. And worship is simply the recognition of that, both who he is and what he does. We recognize it, and then we respond to that. We don't just say, yes, that's true, but then it evokes a response from us. It moves us to where we 
can't help ourselves. It's like an eruption of the soul because of the knowledge of what we know about God, who He is, and what He does. And so He deserves all that would be included in worship. Words like submission. We should come humbly in worship always. Reverence. The utmost reverence in worship should be in our hearts as well as in the sanctuary as a whole. Devotion. We're devoted. We devote ourselves anew. Our coming, that's what we're saying. We're devoted to you, Lord. Now, of course, that's going to show when we leave. We can say it, but then we're going to show it when we leave. We'll say more about that a little later. So submission, reverence, devotion, praise, adoration, all because of who he is and what he does. So why do we worship? Because God deserves it. But then there's another reason we find right here in the text, and that is because God desires it. He desires our worship. Look again in verse 23 of our text. But the hour cometh, and now is. When the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. The Father is seeking true worshipers. Our Father seeks worshipers. You know what the Bible says. That the Son of Man, that is Christ, came to seek and to save. That's intentional, isn't it? He left heaven, came to earth to seek and to save that which is lost. Well, the Father is seeking worshipers. He's interested in people who want to worship Him. You want to get God's attention? Have a heart for worship. That's something to think about. God is seeking people like that. He desires our worship. So when we think about worship, what we're thinking about is not the human part of it. I know we're here and glad of that, glad for every one of you, always glad. But we need to always be reminded that worship is not about the congregation. Worship's not about the preacher. And a heads up, choir, worship's not going to be about you either. And here's a case in point. We have worship without a choir, so it tells us worship does not depend upon the choir. So I'm just throwing that out. Doc, I'm sure you'll remind them from time to time. But we want our choir. But not that we revolve the service around the choir or the preacher or the musicians or the song leader or even you and me. Uh, let's face it. A lot of people go to church, and it's all about the style of the service. It's about what kind of music they got there at Liberty. What kind of preacher is that? <laughs> what kind of, what goes on there, humanly speaking? And then when people leave, what's on their mind a lot of time? Well, let's be honest. What's on their mind is, well, I didn't really care for that song, or boy, I liked that one. Ah, uh, the message, you know, I'd, if he just shorten it up. Hey, go ahead and say amen. <laughs> go ahead and say amen. You know, it's all about 
my taste, my wants, this style. And, and that's, but it's not ever to be about that. It's not about us. It is about God. And what does He want? That's what should be uppermost on our heart. What does He expect? That's a novel thought in worship, isn't it? What's God expect out of this service? What does God want in this service? And what does he deserve in this service? What would bring him great delight in this service? Well, I think it's those very things that we mentioned. Submission, reverence, praise, adoration, worship from the heart. that We'll talk about more in spirit and in truth. What I'm saying to you is that God not only deserves worship, but he desires worship of the right kind. Too much worship is concerned about the taste and desires of people instead of the pleasure and approval of God. Agree? It absolutely is. And so we need to leave any and all services with our only concern being whether God was pleased and whether God was glorified. That's all that matters, period. Let me give you a couple of verses from the book of Acts that uh, reminds us of something else before we move on. Not only does God deserve our worship and desires our worship, but I want to throw this in because it's a corrective in a lot of our thinking. And that is, though God deserves it and God desires it, God does not need it. Don't ever get in your mind that somehow God needed you here today and that you did God a great big favor by showing up. You should never, ever think that way because God needs nothing. He needs nothing. He doesn't even need our worship. He doesn't even need the, the worship of angels in heaven or the redeemed in heaven. He doesn't need that. He has no needs. And I didn't preach a message on that, but I probably should because I think that we have this idea that God is so needy. He needs you to sing in the choir. He needs you to go out and witness. He needs you to do this. He needs you to give your money. God needs no one. He's all sufficient. He's self-existent and self-sufficient. He's self-contained. The old writers used to use this word complacency. God is complacent. That means he's self-satisfied. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he needed no world. He needed no people. He needs no worship. He needs nothing. Now let me give you the verses from Acts 17. This is where Paul's up on Mars Hill speaking to those high-flying philosophers. And he kind of brings them down to earth. They were worshipful, but worshiped false gods and this and that. They had all kinds of beliefs. Acts 17, 24, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything. Do you see that? Seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. God is the consummate giver. He's not the taker. It's not that God is needy or even worse, greedy. 
He, you know, people have this idea, God wants all your time, doesn't he? God doesn't need your time. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your service. He needs nothing. Whereas all the false gods of Paul's day, and still today, they are needy gods. They want people's money. They want people's sacrifice. And this is inbred in the people. You've got to give to God. You've got to pay God off. You've got to be here. You've got to do that. It's always paying a God who can never, ever be satisfied. That's not worship and service. God doesn't need us. He allows us to be involved in worship. He allows us and invites us to be in worship. But need it? No. He needs nothing. Later on, Paul went to Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. We read about it, Acts 19, 26. Moreover, you see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, that is Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands, so that not only this our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. Here, I put it in its context a little bit. Paul is dealing with people that are all riled up because Paul has come to Ephesus saying that all false gods are no gods. And there's only one God, the true God. Same message he preached in Athens, he took to Corinth. And you know what? They didn't like it because they had this big business built around the worship of Diana or Artemis of the Ephesians. Big temple, shrines made, big ones and little ones that people could take home, just like NASCAR souvenirs or something. They had those. And it was a big business. So when Paul came and was making inroads, people were turning to Christ and giving up those gods, they had a little meeting. And it was like a town hall meeting. And those who were involved in the making of those idols said, we've got to stop this. And notice how they couch this language. It wasn't out of concern for money, which really that was what was driving it. What they said was that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised, and her magnificence should be destroyed. That's a false god for you. Their magnificence can be destroyed if you don't worship them in a certain way. Poor Diana. Wouldn't it be a shame if her magnificence would be destroyed? Well, you know something? God's magnificence can never be destroyed. And his magnificence can never be altered and added to. You're not making him more magnificent by being here. Nor would you detract or take away from his magnificence if you stayed away. So you see the difference in false gods and the true God. Our God needs nothing and he's magnificent in and of himself. So why do we worship? Because he deserves it and he desires it, but not that he needs it. Number three question. We'll be very short here. I don't think much needs to be said. Whom do we worship? Well, we worship God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Last week, we dealt with the unchanging nature of God. And as I was thinking back, reflecting on that, I thought that pretty well sums up what we ought to do in worship. 
is to focus on those three things about our unchanging God. What did we say that was unchanging about God? And these are three big areas that all of our worship should be directed to, whether our singing or our preaching. His ways, focusing on his unchanging ways, focusing on his unchanging words in the scripture, and then focusing on his unchanging will. That's the heart of worship. God's ways, God's words, and God's will. So we worship him. MacArthur put it this way, to worship the Lord is to ascribe to him the honor, glory, adoration, praise, reverence, and devotion that is due him both for his greatness and for his goodness. Amen and amen. Number four question, when do we worship? Well, you say, of course, we worship on Sunday, but that's not the only time that we worship. Worship is not a one day or a one hour in the week activity. Worship is an everyday activity. It is something we should do often and regularly. And then we come together for the corporate time. But there's personal worship. We call it the quiet time or the devotional time, the time we spend in prayer and Bible reading. Well, to think of that as worship because it comes over into, it pours over into our corporate worship. Not only private worship, but family worship. Our families need to worship together. Where father and mother call together the children if they're still under the roof and say, we're going to read our Bible now, honey. Let's sit still. Or we're going to read our Bible storybook. Whatever the case may be, we're going to go through the catechism. Even better, we're going to have time of prayer. It doesn't have to be a long, drawn-out thing. It just needs to be done. And it needs to be done daily if possible. It needs to be done in our homes. And so you have personal worship, you have family worship, then you have corporate worship. And what a time that is we come together as God's family, like we are today, like we will tonight, like we do Wednesday, and any special services that we may have. And what a privilege that is. So the question, when? Every chance we get. Don't try to limit worship. Don't try to say, well, that's worship time. Try to expand it. There's never a time when it's improper. God worship is you worship all the time. Just think about those cherubim. Think about those seraphim. You read about them in Scripture. You ever wonder what it must be like to be one of them? They were created expressly for worship, weren't they? That's what they were made for. And that's what they've been doing from the day of their creation. They have worshipped the eternal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, let your mind work on this. It'll take some imagination to think of this. Can you even imagine that one of those seraphs, one of those cherubs who's around the throne, shielding, we're told, shielding their vision, shielding their bodies, shielding their feet from the immaculate holiness of God. Can you even imagine One of those beings on any given day at any given time saying, oh no, we got to worship again today. That's unthinkable, isn't it? It's unthinkable. And yet, they have never been redeemed. No, they've never been redeemed. They know nothing of sin. They've only known holiness. And they worship. 
And they never tire of that. And yet we have been redeemed. We know what it is to be a filthy, rotten sinner. We sang Amazing Grace, a wretch. We know what a wretch we are, don't we? Don't we? And then grace comes into our heart and changes us and makes us fit for heaven. And yet we can tire so easily and say, oh, got to go back to church tonight. Oh, just think of it. Wonder how the cherubim, when they see us and hear us if they can, what they must think. What they must think that we tire of worship and we're bored with worship and we're asking, do I really have to instead of do I get to? What a wonderful thing to come back and worship. Let me share this scripture with you. We're thinking about when do we worship. I think this hits the nail right on the head. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. It describes worship, actually, in several ways. It says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, what that's simply saying is Christ has opened up the way to be in fellowship with God through his death on the cross and his shed blood. So we have boldness to enter into God's holy presence and having a high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near. That's what we do in worship. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast. That's what we do in worship. When we sing these songs, when we hear these truths, we're getting a tighter grip on them. Or better yet, they're getting a tighter grip on us. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. The word provoke there, we normally use that in a negative way. You provoke someone, it's always negative. You provoke them to anger, provoke them to jealousy or what have you. This is provoking in the right way. Encouraging, exhorting, stimulating, if you please, others. That's what we do when we gather corporately. Again, use your imagination. Imagine you're the only one in the building. You know what? I can tell you how you'd feel. You'd be very discouraged. You'd look around and say, where's everybody at? What's going on? But you're encouraged because you look around and you see other people. Now, as I said, church is not for the people. But in this sense it is, we are to encourage one another, provoke one another to love and to good works. Not forsaking, it says in verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. And that, of course, in context, you know what it's talking about. It's not talking about assembling ourselves together for some kind of a meal. Well, we like to do that. It's not about worship. Not eating, but worship. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more. Do you see that phrase? As you see the day approaching. What day is that? That's the day of Christ's coming. It's getting closer. We say that. Our songs remind us of that. And so since we're getting closer to the time of Christ coming back, you know what? We ought to be more together instead of less together. There's a terrible trend. Terrible trend. It's against the Bible teaching altogether. The early church met daily. They couldn't get enough of worship and fellowship. They knew they needed that. 
They had to come together to worship and renew their faith, renew their hearts. We ought to feel the same way. But what is the trend in the church today? It's to pull back. It's to meet less, not more. A lot of churches just have the one worship. One time, one hour, one service a week. How do you square that with a verse like that? And so much the more as you see the day approaching. And when we come together, we worship together and encourage one another in the Lord. I remember days when I went to those Promise Keepers conferences. Some of you may have gone to some of those. Coach Bill McCartney, who had coached college football for Colorado, he was a leader of those conferences. And those were good in their own way. That Not everything that I would agree with in the theology and some of the things you would hear from speakers might be a little off. But for the most part, they honored the Lord. And when you would go to those conferences, it was unusual because for the most part, it was like 99.9% men and hear the singing. You can imagine 15 to 20,000 in most venues, a men's chorus. You could get, I, I think one reason the men don't sing in church like here is because we're with women. And I'm going to tell you, you get a group of men like that together, they'll bellow it out. And I'm telling you, they were just unashamed, unabashed, singing praise. Well, even before the service, even before those services would start, you know, it's been said that boys will be boys. Well, that's true. We're just a little older boys. And you get some guys, they were so full, they couldn't wait for the service to start. And so on one side of the venue, they would start this little chant, we love Jesus. Yes, we do. We love Jesus. How about you? And then on the other side of the stadium or the arena, wherever it happened to be, they would go back and say the same thing. We love Jesus. Yes, we do. We love Jesus. How about you? And we get louder and louder and louder. And I thought about that in preparation of this message, thinking about to provoke one another to love and good works. Though we're not saying that in this congregation, we're not saying that vocally, that's really what we're saying. You're saying by your presence here, I love Jesus. Yes, I do. I love Jesus. How about you? And by your presence on this side, that's what you're saying to these people over here. We need to come together as much as we can because God deserves it. He desires it. Remember? And then we are blessed as well. How do we worship? Just a few words and we'll bring this to a conclusion. Back to our text. True worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him. That is a strong word. Must worship Him in spirit and in truth. That's the only way worship is acceptable. In my reading, I found out something that I don't know that I ever knew, but it was refreshing to see it, that this word must is found three key times in the Gospel of John. All three of them are there in critical moments to teach critical things. Here's the third of the three. Just jot down these other. I think you'll find them remarkable as well. First time we come across this word must is John 3, 7. You must be born again. That's a necessity, isn't it? The second time is John 3, 14. The Son of Man must be lifted up. That refers to his crucifixion on the cross. So there's a necessity of the new birth, the necessity of the crucifixion, and here's the third one. 
the necessity of true worship. They that worship him must worship him, but in this way, in spirit and in truth. Some versions of the Bible, translations of the Bible have a capital S as if that means the Holy Spirit. And you can't take it that way because all worship is spirit-derived or uh, initiated or prompted by the Spirit. But I think the meaning here is, as the King James, a small s. It has to do with the inner person. That is to say, if worship is true, if worship is real, if worship is genuine, it must come from the inside of us. Or to put it another way, worship is not really happening if the only thing present in the worship service is your physical body. You can be here in person and not be here in spirit. True? Your heart cannot be in it, possibly. Only God knows that. But sometimes we think as long as I'm in the pew and in the service, bodily, physically, I've done my part. Not if we understand what this is saying. He's calling for worship from the heart in spirit as well as in truth. In truth has to do with in line with the word of God. That is according to what the Bible says about God and about what he wants. Anything won't do. You can't just throw it at the wall, so to speak, and hope it sticks. You can't just worship and say, well, that was what I thought I ought to do, and God will have to be good with it. No, he doesn't have to be good with it. And it can often lead to be something that's unacceptable. It needs to be in spirit, from the heart, and in truth. Philippians 3.3 3 tells us that this is the mark of a true believer. It's an interesting passage, actually. One verse where Paul lays out three marks of a true Christian. Are you ready for this verse? For we are the circumcision. Paul is saying there basically we're the true people of God, not the Jewish people. Now it's the believers in Christ. We are the circumcision. And here are the three marks of a true Christian, which worship God in the Spirit. And rejoice in Christ Jesus. And thirdly, have no confidence in the flesh. Those are true marks of a real believer. We worship God in the spirit. We rejoice in Christ Jesus. That is, he's our source of joy. And we have no confidence in the flesh. That is what we can do for God. But all of our confidence is in Jesus' blood and his righteousness. Those are statements true of all people. So we worship in spirit because he's changed our spirit. He's given us a new heart, a new heart for worship. So three things quickly. Let me give you these thoughts and we'll close. How should we worship? We should give attention to at least three, three things. And first of all is preparation of the heart. If we're to worship from the heart, we have to prepare the heart. Matthew 15, 8 Christ was speaking to some very religious people when he said this, or about certain religious people when he said this. This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips. But then he said, their heart is far from me. Hmm. But in vain they do worship. Christ called it out for what it was, empty worship worthless worship 
when your heart is not near him, with him. In vain they do worship, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. So Christ called it out for what it is. It's vain worship. It's empty worship if we're not worshiping from the heart and with the heart. Secondly, not only preparation of the heart, but praise from the heart. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together, the psalmist said. And this really gets to the issue of it. It's personal. It's from within. Bless the Lord, he said in Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Think of that when we worship. All that there is in us should be poured out toward God in worship. Even though you're not speaking. You still bless the Lord in your attitude, in your thinking. Are we not to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? So you're blessing the Lord as you're sitting there listening to this and saying, Thank you, Lord. Thank you for what the preacher is saying. Thank you for this is true. Thank you that you've given me a heart to worship. It's coming from within you. There's a preparation of the heart. There's praise from the heart. And then there's the presentation of the heart. We present our heart in these ways to listen. You can listen with your ears, but are you listening with your heart? Present your heart to listen, to submit, to believe, and to obey. Worship is true when it transforms our life. Worship is just going through the motions of routine and habit if we're not being changed. Let me put it this way. If our life is not different because we've worshipped on Sunday, it's not different when we leave the place of worship or when we go to our job on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. We have not worshipped. Worship, if it's true worship, transforms. It shows up in our life. Or you could say, we talked about worship that pleases God. Worship that pleases Him also leads to godly living it pleases god and it always ends up in godly living as a byproduct of the time we spend with him let's pray together would you bow with me our father how grateful we are that we know you the one and only living god true god and thank you for what we know about you written in your word, preserved for us to know, to read, to understand, and then to respond to. And the way we respond to that is in faith, in obedience, in love, in submission, in worship. And we pray that we have done that today from our heart. We pray, Lord, that you are pleased with this service in every way, the singing, the preaching, the hearing, and now in the obedience, our response to what we've heard. If we just continue to worship as we have been and we're not called up to a higher level, then we have not applied the message at all. This should change the way we look at worship and think about it. Help us to apply it by your Spirit. Drive it deep. And may it transform our lives, both in the church and outside. May it lead to family worship and more personal worship. For you are worthy of it all. And we thank you for all of the privilege we have to do just that. In Jesus' name.